Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Monday, April 8th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're taking an up-close look at OCD and the many less common, harder-to-talk-about expressions that this disorder can take. Tonic reporter Shayla Love has obsessive-compulsive disorder. Her OCD often takes the form of more stereotypical symptoms like hand-washing compulsions or a fear of germs and sickness. But her OCD has also manifested in more rare or misunderstood obsessions, like a fixation on bodily functions like swallowing or the need to always be seen as perfect. Because of this, Love decided to take a deep dive into researching some of these less common, sometimes darker expressions of OCD, which can often remain undiagnosed for years. So I sat down with Shayla Love to learn more. Hi, Shayla. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad you're back on the podcast talking about another interesting sort of facet of mental health. My favorite topic. Yes. Um, Today we're talking about OCD and we're talking about various expressions of obsessive compulsive disorder that are more rare, some of which are taboo. What made you think about this piece and write about this piece to begin with? Yeah, so I think this started when I went to the International OCD Foundations Conference last year. And I was there kind of as a double agent. So I have OCD, so I was there as kind of a participant, but also as a writer because I write about mental health a lot. But when I was there and sitting in support groups and listening to different people talk about their experiences, it really hit me for not the first time, but it really sort of, um, I was really aware for the first time of how different people with OCD's experiences can be. So two people who have the same sort of diagnosis could have a completely different trajectory, different obsessions, different compulsions. I mean, some of them I had never heard of before. And these people talked about how hard it was for them to get diagnosed. They had just had no idea that they had OCD. And when they got diagnosed, they were able to get better, but it took a long time to get there. And we have a really stereotypical idea about what OCD is. We think about hand washing, we think about counting and checking the stove to see if the burners are still on. But A lot of people have more, like you said, taboo obsessions. They're all sort of stuck in the mind. They don't exist in the physical world as much. And so these mental obsessions can be really hard to figure out what's going on. Yeah. So in your story, you lay out seven different expressions of OCD that kind of fall under that category. And I'm curious, by providing this research and information, what your goal is with this piece? I got a lot of emails after we published this piece that 
people saw their own thoughts reflected for the first time under the umbrella of OCD. So some of the subtypes that we that I wrote about, one of them is hyperawareness OCD or sensory motor OCD. And that's an obsession with uh, some sort of bodily function. So that can be blinking, it can be swallowing, it can be breathing. And so a person who has this form of OCD would be just obsessed and constantly monitoring either their blinking or swallowing or breathing. Or I spoke to one guy who was obsessed with a, a mole on his hip. And so people aren't sure that they have OCD because if they were to look it up online, they would see, again, these more stereotypical presentations. Or if they go to their doctor, perhaps their doctor has never heard of this expression before. So I really wanted a resource for people who have these more rare expressions and more rare obsessions to be able to see that it is OCD and there is a path of treatment that they can follow if they want to, and also that they're not alone. So I have a form of hyperawareness OCD where I've obsessed about my swallowing in the past. And when I went to this conference, I heard another woman talk about her swallowing obsession, and it just blew my mind because I could not believe that somebody else had that too. I thought, perhaps naively, but I thought I was like the only person in the world who had that thought. And instead, I found out it's one of the top three most common hyperawareness OCD obsessions. So it's just indescribably helpful to know that there are other people out there who share the same obsessions as you and who are going through the same struggles. So I really wanted to provide a place for people to connect with each other and see that they're not alone and then also just know what they have. Absolutely. And you in your piece, talk about your own story with hyperawareness OCD, but you also talk about a second expression of OCD that you personally have dealt with, and that's perfectionism OCD. So let's go there for now, and we'll sort of start with your personal story, and then we'll move into some of the other forms of OCD that you learned about and researched. Can you tell us a little bit about perfectionism OCD, what it is, and why is it particularly hard to diagnose? Yeah, so... As a person with OCD, I actually had some of the very stereotypical symptoms from a young age. So I was a compulsive hand washer when I was a little kid, and I had some you know, pretty stereotypical contamination obsessions. But perfectionism is something that is hard to recognize as an obsession because it so, can be so similar to your actual personality. So I am very, I'm a very type A person. I like things to be on time. I like things to be organized. And perfectionism feels like, like it's a syn- synonymous with that. Um, but perfectionism is actually a little different because it's not adaptive, it's maladaptive. So when perfectionism is an obsession, people might feel the need to be in control of a situation at all times. Um, we have an excessive concern with making mistakes. Uh, we think that making a mistake means something about our overall value as a person. Um, we might have an overwhelming need to please others. And kind of counterintuitively, we can often avoid things altogether if they can't be done perfectly, which essentially means you fail at the thing. It doesn't get done. But that's somehow better than just being mediocre. So I've struggled with this in my life a lot. Um, and in the piece, I talk about how there was a class that I took in uh, undergraduate college, and I ended up failing the class because one day I showed up late, and I couldn't walk into the classroom five minutes late. And so I ended up failing the class. And so you could ask, like, how is that possible? Because you did something so much worse than if you had just walked in five minutes late. But that's how perfectionism can play out, or it's how it played out to me. And it took me a long time to realize that this was a component of my OCD. And when I did, suddenly I was able to deal with it and to and to fight it and to to really challenge those urges that I have. 
Yeah, and I think that in your story, you tell the story of someone who actually has a more sort of stereotypical expression of OCD, which he has an obsessive fear of contamination in his apartment. And what happens to him because of that, I think, is really illuminating in sort of how OCD can play out and how it can be kind of counterintuitive to what people stereotypically think of as how the condition can look. Will you tell that story? Absolutely. Um yeah, so I read this story in uh, this classic book about OCD called The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing. It came out in the 80s, and it was kind of the first popular text about OCD that told what OCD was like to the country. And before that, people didn't really know that many details about it. So the author wrote about a law school student who had contamination obsessions, and he was obsessed with the cleanliness of his apartment. So it was just really stressful for him how long the cleaning would take. It would never be as clean as he wanted it to be. And so once once he got it to the place where it was clean and it satisfied him, he would start avoiding going home because once he was home, he would start to make a mess and it would be contaminated again. So he you know, continued to avoid going home longer and longer and longer until eventually he was sleeping on a park bench and essentially homeless because he wasn't going home. And I think the story continues that the police found him and they were very confused because he showed them his student ID and he said his apartment was down the street. But this shows how maladaptive OCD is, right? Everybody's on some spectrum of how clean they like things. But when OCD is really diagnosable as a disorder is when it's really interfering with your life in a way, like you said, that might be counterintuitive to what people think. So sometimes people with OCD are really messy. And that's because the mess is so overwhelming that they can't they just can't tackle it as a, as a chore or because of perfectionism, they could never get it perfect enough or just right enough. So people might have contamination OCD and not even realize it because they think in their minds, oh, but I'm really messy. How could that be the case? Or they might be a perfectionist, but then think, how, how could that be true because my room is always messy when the reality is they could never clean their room because the amount of effort and time it would take would be so much to get it to the level that they want it to be. Yeah, I think that that story in particular is such a good and interesting example of of what it means for a condition to be maladaptive, as you said. Um, the next expression of OCD that you talk about in your piece is particularly gripping, perhaps surprising to some people. It's pedophilia OCD. Can you walk us through what that is? Sure. So pedophilia OCD perhaps obviously is a highly stigmatized obsession, and it's the obsession about whether or not a person is a pedophile. And so it's, it's very different and one step removed from a person actually having urges or feelings towards children. Um, what it is instead is rather one day a thought will appear, usually while a person is around a little kid, that says like, oh, you just looked, you just thought that little girl was cute. And then there's a thought that says, does that mean that I'm attracted to that little girl? And why am I having this thought? And does the presence of these thoughts mean that I'm a pedophile? And they sort of snowball from there. So it's about the doubt of not knowing whether the questioning of whether or not you're a pedophile means that you are a pedophile. And this is terrifying for somebody to go through because it's nearly impossible to talk about to friends or family or to the parents of the kids in which you're having these doubts and fears over. People are afraid that if they go to a doctor or psychiatrist and they tell them that this is what they're thinking, that 
they will call the police and that they will go to jail. Um, and sometimes these people think that they deserve it, that they should go to jail. And you know, it's it's a really heartbreaking obsession because it's so stigmatized and because the distinction between being a pedophile and the obsession about it is is not really understood. Yeah, it was it was painful to read some of the stories that you were telling just because, you know, people were really, really struggling with that stigma and struggling to seek treatment in the first place. And then in the case of one of your stories, when she did seek treatment, it was misunderstood. Can you tell us about the woman that you call Kate in your story? Yeah, so Kate suffered from both pedophilia OCD and harm OCD, which are pretty similar. Harm OCD is the obsession that you're going to harm people that you love or or strangers, but it often fixates on people that you love. And then she also developed pedophilia OCD afterwards. And the first psychiatrist that she went to, the first therapist she went to, he asked her, do your obsessions fixate on any one person? And she said that they were relegated to her partner at the time. She was scared that she was going to hurt him. And this doctor called up her partner and told him that she was dangerous, that Kate was dangerous. That's just the worst outcome for somebody in this position to be in, because not only did it dissuade her from sharing what she was going through in the future, but it completely misrepresented what was going on with her and where she was coming from. And she's lucky that her partner didn't take it seriously and was kind of like, what are you talking about? No, she's not. But it could have gone a very different way. And so it's really important for clinicians to know the difference between I'm going to hurt somebody and I don't know that I'm not going to hurt somebody. And Kate struggled with harm OCD as well as pedophilia OCD. And I want to go back to pedophilia OCD for a second and just talk about the treatment. Because in your piece, one doctor explained that actually exposure therapy, one of the treatments for this expression of OCD is itself taboo, and that that's another challenge in dealing with this form of OCD. So will you talk about kind of the role of treatment and why it's so complicated? Yeah, so reassuring people that they're not a pedophile doesn't really help them get better. Seeking reassurance is something that people with OCD do a lot. So if they have an obsessive thought or a fear, they'll ask people around them, are you sure that this isn't going to happen? What about this? And they want other people to tell them that it's going to be okay. But this is a really short-lived feeling because when you get told that something's going to be okay, then the anxiety sort of dissipates for maybe like 10 seconds, and then it immediately starts to come back. So one of the more evidence-based ways to actually get over these obsessions is cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure and response prevention, or ERP. And that's when you expose somebody to the very thing that they're afraid of, and you're teaching them a lot of things. One is just how to manage the anxiety in that moment without avoiding it or doing any other compulsive behavior that they might have come up with, and to sort of live in the doubt because you'll never be certain about anything. So you need to be able to just live your life with with any uncertainty that might come along with you know all the anxieties that life brings. So for pedophilia OCD, I spoke to a clinician in LA and he had to expose people to the idea that they were pedophiles. So that in itself is very challenging, I think, for anybody to do. And for somebody who has this specific obsession and fear, it would, it's just so hard to do. So he would have them watch toddlers and tiaras and point out moments when the kids look pretty 
or he might have them go into a clothing store and touch little kids' underwear on the shelves. Stuff that, right, I think anybody would sort of cringe at and be like, what is the purpose of this? But the point is to get the person to a place where they're in the store and they're doing this thing and they're just saying like, this is just a thing that's happening. I'm not anxious about it. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean much to me. And then they can move on and and live their life. And then they can do things like spend time with their family members, spend time with their nieces and nephews in Kate's case, or some people have this in their parents and they start to avoid their children. So it's much better for them to actually get to a place where they can spend time with their kids than to avoid doing something like some of these exposures, which can feel kind of taboo. Yeah. And for Kate, I mean, was the treatment successful and and how, how successful is this treatment in general? I think with OCD, it's hard for me to say that I've ever met somebody who's like, oh, I did this one treatment and then it ended and now I'm 100% better. I think that people with OCD struggle with obsessive thoughts of varying kinds for their whole life. Um, but the exposure therapy model, which is that you avoid you, you don't avoid things that make you anxious and that you kind of confront them will help people live a functional life. So Kate reached, you know, she reached a point in which she's much, much better now. And now she can spend time with her family and she's not as sort of um, incapacitated by these obsessions, which she was at one point. So I think that's a constant it's a constant battle. And the people that I spoke to it, with all the different obsessions feel that way. So they're, you know, we're all along some spectrum of recovered, but I think there'll always be work going forward. Another pretty interesting expression of OCD that you cover in your piece is called homosexuality OCD. It's kind of self-explanatory, but um, the story that, that you paired with this is interesting. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So this was a woman named Hannah that I spoke to who developed homosexuality OCD, which is the obsession that you are gay. And sort of like pedophilia OCD, there's kind of a one degree separation of what people might think this actually is. So she definitely wasn't against homosexuality. She had gay friends. She believes in gay rights. And so it was really hard for her to grapple with why this obsessive thought kept coming into her mind, this question of, not am I gay, but how do I know that I'm not gay? Um, And so she started avoiding all of her female friends. She stopped watching her favorite TV shows if they had pretty female actresses in them. She didn't go to the gym because she was, you know, she was avoiding looking at women in activewear and yoga pants and sports bras and all that stuff. Um, And for her, it was really rooted in the fact that she was falling in love with her boyfriend and eventually they got married. And in her mind, she thought, well, if I don't know that I'm gay, maybe that means I am gay, and then I have to separate from my husband, and I don't want to do that. So for her, it was really rooted in this sort of like potential disruption of her relationship that she really valued because she didn't know whether or not she was she was gay. And so and for her, exposure therapy meant, um, you know, reading articles about bisexuality, reading about people who had late in life coming out stories, watching Orange is the New Black, and just sort of learning that maybe she'll never know if if she is or isn't gay, or just the presence of the thought that questions her sexuality doesn't mean anything about her relationship, and that's how she moved forward. Yeah, that's interesting. There is one more expression of OCD that you cover in your piece, and it's scrupulosity OCD. Walk us through that. Yeah, so scrupulosity is an obsession with sinning or being moral, um, good and evil. And so I spoke to a couple people who, you know, grappled with various obsessions around 
the devil and heaven and hell and following religious rules and whether every action that they made was moral. And this can take on two forms. I spoke to one person who's very religious and one person who's more secular. So you don't even have to be really religious in order to feel scrupulosity OCD. But, it, you know, you can imagine that it takes on a life of its own when every sort of behavior that you have is sort of being questioned for its inherent goodness or evilness. Um, and so for people who are religious, especially, it can be really ostracizing even in the context of their religion. The person that I spoke to who was very Jewish, he felt that at his peak of scrupulosity, he was actually the farthest away from his religious beliefs. So it, it was very separate. It was more of an obsession than an actual faith. All of these obsessions are, there are obviously uh, obviously similarities that thread all of them together. But in, in some ways, these manifestations are very different. Can you talk about kind of what connects them all, what they all have in common? Yeah, definitely. I think that just going back to the beginning when I was at this conference and hearing about different people's experiences and thinking how different they were, there are some underlying commonalities that all make these OCD, right? Like these are all one disorder. They are all OCD and we should be able to find um, some sort of common ground with each other. And that's, you know, at its at its very basic level, OCD is any persistent, intrusive, obsessive thought that causes anxiety and is paired with a behavior that attempts to make the anxiety go away. And that behavior might be as simple as sort of checking your thoughts. It can be completely internal, or it can be avoidance, right, sort of a more passive action. But that's sort of the root at what OCD is about. And for all of these, I think everybody has had sort of that errant thought that like, oh, I'm going to kill that person, or you, you know, I don't everybody has these sort of bad thoughts that pop up every now and again. But then most people just think that was weird or maybe they don't think about it at all and then the thought just sort of goes away and they don't think about it again. Something for OCD people happens differently, which is that they have a thought and then they sort of can't let it go. They think, why did I think that? What does it mean? Like, does that mean something about my real life? What is it about that thought that means, does it mean something about me? And then they get really fixated on it. And then what happens if you try to suppress a thought is it pops up more and more and more and more. And then it just becomes, it turns into this obsession that takes a life of its own. So I think in the case, in all of these cases, there's kind of that thought stickiness that's present um, with people with OCD and not being able to, to let a thought go and just let it be a thought and one that passes away. Yeah. And my last question is really about kind of how your own experience with OCD affected how this piece turned out and how you were able to talk to your different subjects on a different level because of your personal experience or sort of what was that like for you? Yeah, um, I mean, the interviews for this were very intimate, both I hope for my sources and also for me, because I've gone through a lot of this stuff myself and it can be hard to talk about. And so I felt like I was able to share some of my experiences for the first time with another person who really got it. And I hope that I provided that to some of the people that I spoke with who bravely shared with me and then agreed to be written about. You know, that's that's a hard thing to do. Some of the people that I talked to said that they had never talked about this before ever to anybody. And that to me as a journalist, I just feel extremely honored to like have that position. But as a person with OCD, it made me feel 
just part of a community and a reminder that we are all going through the same things and that we can all get through it together. And one of the guys that I spoke to who was obsessed with his blinking, you know, he was in his 50s and had really gone through gone through hell and came out on the other side and sent me an email afterwards just offering his support and saying if I ever needed to talk, he was there, right? And so that that means so much. And I think people with all kinds of mental health issues or just any kind of neurodiversity should be able to talk to each other and, and support each other. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being so open and for coming on the show and sharing with us. Thank you for having me. Make sure to read the full story at tonic.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening, and make sure to tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.